just a reminder, I don't know if I heard, I mispronounced that there is nursery. We welcome your kids to be in here still, but if you uh, prefer for your kid appropriate age to be in nursery, then uh, that's fine as well, and that's in the back. I want to make that clear. But when our oldest child, uh, Hazel, was in fifth grade, she was given a handout, uh, a get-to-know-you handout at the beginning of the year with questions for the, her teacher to get to know her students. One of the questions on this handout was, if you were the ruler of the world, what's the first thing you would do as ruler? And I will never forget the answer that she wrote. Her answer was, I would step down immediately. That is too much responsibility for me. <laughs> it's such a wise, funny, and very hazel answer if you know her. Uh, she was confronted with something so much bigger and greater than herself and the world that she knew, and that the only thought that she could have was, I would step down, this is way too much for me. <laughs> well, the text we're going to look at this morning in our series on the life of David confronts us with something that's much bigger than us as well, confronts us with something that's much greater than who we are as well. And the thing we hope to get confronted with this morning is the presence of God. Much of David's life is actually along this theme of being confronted with the presence of God and the different responses and reactions that that provokes in him. Uh, David's story, if you haven't already seen, we will, that it is not neat. It is not clean because it's real. Therefore, it is messy. Eugene Peterson, the late Eugene Peterson writes, The David story presents us not with a polished ideal to which we aspire, but with a rough-edged actuality. David has little wisdom to pass on on how to live successfully. He was an unfortunate parent and unfaithful husband. From a purely historical point of view, he was a barbaric chieftain with talent for poetry. But David's importance isn't in his morality or in his military prowess, but in his experience of and witness to God. David fighting, praying, loving, singing. David with his eight wives. David angry. David devious. David generous. David dancing. Every event in his life was a confrontation with God, end quote. A little bit has happened between the, the last time we were in our series with David and his life and where we will be this morning. We're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 6. What's happened between what we looked at last time and our text this morning is Saul, the original king of Israel, has died. He has died, and therefore David has officially taken the throne, officially been anointed as Israel's new king. And David has once again defeated Israel's enemies, and once the, the lost Ark of the Covenant was lost, and now it has been retained. Now it's back in David's and Israel's possession. And it's going to be through the Ark of the Covenant that we will be confronted with and encounter the presence of God in our text this morning. Tim Keller calls the Ark of the Covenant a concrete sermon to the world and to his people about who he is and how he will save the world. One commentator called the Ark of the Covenant a sacrament of God's presence. In the text we are about to read, David as the new king is seeking to have the Ark taken and placed in the capital of Israel, Jerusalem. In doing this, in placing the ark in this location, David is making the worship of God 
He's trying to make the worship of God the center of Israel's life, the center of David's life. But the two main events that happen along the way is where David and we encounter the presence of God in our text this morning. So if you can or are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. We're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 6. We're just going to read 1 through 15. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring them up from there, the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were making merry before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzziah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzziah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had burst forth against Uzziah, and that place is called Perez Uzziah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it, took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David... The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the, of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and fattened, fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. And so David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. This is the word of the Lord. Be all right, go ahead and take your seat. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts to your word this morning. That you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see. You would help us uh, to be transformed and changed by your message, by your word, and that you would do that to us now on the spot, that you would change us now as we hear your word, that we would change accordingly. Only you can do this, so we ask that you would. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. If I were to ask everyone here, what stands out in the passage we just read? I'm pretty sure I'd get the same answer for most everyone except for the people who are trying to be clever or overthink things like I often do. <laughs> a lot happens and a lot is said just in these opening few verses. I mean, the ark is making its way to the capital of Israel and there is going to be a huge party. We are told that all the house of Israel is already celebrating, is already partying in anticipation of this event. They were making merry before God with songs and instruments. This is going to be an epic party for Israel and this new king 
And it seems that he has things rightly ordered here from the get-go. He has his priorities in order in bringing the Ark of the Covenant to the capital. He is wanting to make the worship of God the center of this nation as it should be. Unlike his predecessor, Saul. But I would bet there's only one thing that everyone clued in on. Really, maybe just one verse that got everyone's attention. Verse 7. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzziah, and God struck him down there because of his heir, and he died there beside the ark of God. One commentator wrote, doesn't the event of Uzziah offend you? I mean, after all, he was only trying to help. Was he to allow the oxen to bounce the ark right off the cart? What was he supposed to do? Why didn't God cut him some slack? Some of you may be sitting there and thinking, see, this is why I can't fully buy into Christianity, this whole Christian thing. The passages like this, I can't just buy into it. Passages like this show that the Bible is not something we need to really follow or can trust, you might be thinking. You may be thinking that the Old Testament is so weird and so confusing. If you're a Christian, you may even feel embarrassed by some of these passages like this, not knowing what to do. And you might be thinking, I'm really glad so-and-so is not here this morning because this is exactly the kind of stuff that would turn them away. Others may be thinking, this is why I don't read the Old Testament. I don't get it. And the things that I do get are really hard to understand. God seems so harsh and punitive. I'm better off digging my head in the sand with this kind of text and sticking with that love your enemies kind of stuff. But Christian, we cannot do that. Unfortunately, we don't get to pick, cherry pick. Jesus took the Old Testament as the very word of God, and so must we. We cannot cherry pick the passages we like and are comfortable with and disregard some of the harder texts and passages to digest. If you are a Christian, you must take the entire Bible to be the authoritative word inspired by God. So what are we to do? What are we to make of an, with an event like this? Well, one thing to note before we kind of answer that question is that because this sticks out so much to everyone universally and is difficult for all of us to digest, I think one of the first things is it actually points us to the assurance that the Bible is the Word of God, from God. Because if it was made up by humans, this kind of passage would have been left out, <laughs> This one would not have been included. And if it was included, it would have been taken out a long time ago by people that it came to later. These kinds of stories are not the most winsome, attractive pitches to get people interested in God and Christianity. Therefore, the fact that it is there can oddly bring some assurance to us that the Bible is, in fact, God's Word. But what are we to do this morning with this difficult text of Uzziah. Does this prove that God is an angry, wrathful, hot-headed God? A God who is, thank you, <laughs> a God who is ready to bust someone when they step out of line. Is that the message here? And the answer, as we've already heard very wisely, is no. That is not the message. But to understand what is really happening here, we need some more context around and understanding around the Ark of the Covenant. You see, God, back in Exodus, gave Moses and Israel very specific instructions 
about how the ark was to be transported. No one was supposed to look upon it. No one was supposed to touch it. And no one was supposed to transport it via cart. Rather, it was meant to be covered up, and only certain people, Levites, who consecrated themselves, were able to move the ark, uh, were designated to move the ark. So when constructing the ark, God, part of God's instructions to Moses was to put four golden rings on the corners of the ark, and in those uh, holes of the rings, you were to put two poles through them. And the poles were never to be pulled out so that the Levites could transport the ark without actually touching it while it was covered. But as we see in our text, all of those rules are broken. And no one seems to care. No one seems to care about obeying God's specific instructions for the ark and how it's been handled and meant to be handled. David is ignorantly celebrating and partying with little to no care of how the rules are being broken. And he is including all of Israel in this approach. He is leading this approach towards the ark. Uzziah and Ohio are not even Levites. So in one sense, the shock should not be that he is struck dead. But in one sense, it should be that it took so long and that he was the only one who actually ends up dying. Oftentimes, the way this passage then gets preached from this or applied is that you better be careful. You better be careful, Christian. To follow all of God's rules or else you might end up ultimately like Uzziah. That is not the point here. It is not the point of his death. It is not a random burst of anger from God. Uzziah's death is a case study of the holiness of God as Paul Tripp puts it. Uzziah thought that the soil, this is his theology, this is his doctrine, he thought The soil and the ground would defile God more than his sin. Showing he had no clue who he was or who God really is. Which is why he casually tries to offer a helping hand to God. As if God needs his helping hand. Therefore what the story of Uzziah teaches David and us is that we are more sinful than we dare to believe. Sure, we'll attest that we're not perfect. No one's perfect. But it's showing us that we are more sinful than we dare to believe. And it's showing us that God is more holy than we know. In other words, the first part of being confronted with the presence of God is being confronted with his awesome holiness and our utter sinfulness. And being confronted with God's presence, you are confronted with the extent of the gap That is between us and God due to our sin and his holiness. This is what the law of God is so good at exposing and making clear to us, if we're honest. It shows us how far short we fall of ever having a chance of working our way towards him through our own efforts and our own goodness. You see, inside the ark... There was kept the literal Ten Commandments that God gave to Moses. And they could not be touched either. This signifies his holy presence and our inability to bridge the gap between our sinfulness and his holiness. What the Bible, the law, and the death of Uzziah drive home is that you have no 
hope within yourself. You have no hope within yourself to reach God and be able to be in his presence on your own. The only place that that will lead to is immediate death. We cannot be in his presence in our own sinful state. We are unable to be in the holy presence of God. Like the passage we read earlier in the service, Isaiah, when he is confronted with this, he says he's undone. That literally means he's unraveling like a ball of yarn before the glory of God. So when we are confronted by God's presence, we are confronted by his holiness. And the only right response to that is humility. Humility and understanding that I have no hope within my own strength and ability to bridge the gap between God and me. That is why David becomes afraid of the Lord. And he says, in light of this, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? This is his his uh, imitation of Isaiah. Woe is me, I'm undone. How can the ark of the Lord come to me when he sees what happens to Uzziah? Even though David is God's chosen, anointed king, David becomes aware through being confronted with his holy presence that his sin, that David's sin, keeps him from being able to be in the presence of God on his own. That is what this scene, this initial scene, is meant to drive home to us. It is meant to humble us. How? By awakening us to the reality of the real problem of our sin. And that there is a real, holy, and just God that we cannot approach on our own. This is called the bad news of the gospel. And it's real. And it's not fun. And it's not easy to hear sometimes, but it's real. And that's part of the way that you know you've experienced the presence of God. Is you've seen the reality of his holiness, which also exposes the reality of your sin. But while what happened to Uzziah was real and something for us to heed when in God's presence, it is not all that the ark teaches us about God's presence, even in this chapter. That is seen clearly in the next scene with Obed-Edom. Because not only does Obed-Edom not die in the presence of the, of the ark, in the presence of God, but he gets blessed for three months that it's in his house. For three months that the ark sits in his house, he gets blessed. After Uzziah, David knows he can't stand in the presence of God, the ark of, of the covenant. So instead, he has it sent to the house of this guy, Obed-Edom, and says, here, you take it. Almost like this weird spiritual game of hot potato. You take it. I don't want to touch it. I don't want it to go off of my hands. But it's what happens here that we learn something else about God's presence. That while Uzziah shows us and David that we are more sinful than we know and God is more holy than we can comprehend, the event of Obed-Edom shows us and David that God is more gracious and good than we can begin to imagine. See, Obed is not an Israelite. He's a Gittite, meaning he's a foreigner. And it is in his house that the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God, dwells for three months. And not only does he not die, he's not even harmed. And more than that, his whole house gets blessed by the presence of God. While the ark and scene with Uzziah shows us our sin and God's holiness, the ark and this scene of Obed shows us God's grace. It shows us that there's no such thing as good people and bad people before the presence or in relationship with God. 
There's no such thing as good people or bad people in relation to God. No one has a leg up. We're all in the same plane. As Romans 3 says, we are all sinners. We have all fallen short. But with Obed, what we also see is although we are all sinners, anyone has hope of being saved by receiving the grace of God alone. While the ark has the Ten Commandments inside of it, it also has the mercy seat on top of it. And as we're told, the mercy seat is guarded by two angels, two cherubim, one at the head and one at the foot, looking at each other, almost guarding this mercy seat. But it was on the mercy seat that sacrifices would be made once a year. And these sacrifices were showing the forgiveness of sins. And the high priest would be the one who would do these sacrifices. It was signifying to David and to Israel that although they were unable to be in the presence of the holy God on their own, God would provide a way. God would provide a way for them to be in his presence And that way is what the Ark of the Covenant shows us is grace. You can't enter his presence on your own, but God will provide a way. It's impossible for us, but what's impossible with man is possible with God. And that's grace. So he's going to provide the way. They did not earn or obey their way into the presence of God's favor. Rather, they were to rely. This is what the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat shows us, that they were to rely on the payment sacrifice and life of another to be able to be in his presence and not die but not only not die be blessed be blessed by being in his presence it's not just as a survival goal right it's to be blessed by him and david gets it we see in our text that david actually gets it because once he learns about god blessing obed he has the ark taken to the capital as was the original plan but this time a few things are different One, there is no cart. They are properly carrying the ark, showing humility and obedience before the presence of a holy God. And two, we learn in verse 13 that every six steps, they sacrifice an ox and fattened animal. I can't imagine how long the journey was made because of that. But they they sacrifice an ox and fattened animal, relying on the grace of God through the sacrifice of another in order to be in the presence of God, this constant reminder, every six steps, every six steps they do that. So now we see both of these things on display in God's presence. We see God's unwavering holiness along with his unbelievable grace. And don't miss what happens when David experiences God's full presence. What it does to him and his heart, his response to experience his full presence of his holiness and his grace together. Did you see what he does? He dances. (laughs) David dances. He goes from getting, get this thing away from me. How is this going to come to me? To now experiencing the reality of God's full presence and his holiness and grace. And it causes him to dance. He doesn't do the kind of dance where you hope no one's watching. And you're just trying to kind of stay under the radar and not make a fool of yourself. He throws caution to the wind and he dances with all his might, we're told. He dances like a five-year-old at a wedding. Almost where the, his body can't move fast enough to express the joy of what he's feeling in his feet in the moment. In other words, David is moved to worship God 
when he experiences God's holy and gracious presence together. And you must have both. You must have both to truly know who God is. Because if you just presume upon his grace without understanding his holiness and your sin like Uzziah did, you will fatally think God needs your help. That you can casually be in his presence on your own terms. And in turn, you will only get God's holy and just wrath poured out on you in the end. But on the other hand, if you just have his holiness without knowing and trusting in his grace, you will only experience fear and you will seek to do anything you can to avoid his presence. In fact, one of the main ways you might seek to avoid God is by obsessively seeking to obey him, making sure his eyes are not on you. But you will never worship if that's all you know of God. You will never You will never know what it is to dance before him in worship with all your might. But when you are confronted with both his holiness and grace, you will in humility be free to trust in the sacrifice and life of another for your sin so that you can in humble confidence be in the full presence of God. And when that happens, you will worship. You will dance. This is what happened to David. And all he had was the sacrament of God's presence in the Ark of the Covenant. That's what David had. And it caused him to dance with all his might. We have Jesus. (laughs) We have Jesus who is not the sacrament of God's presence, but is the person of God presently with us. He is God himself, and yet he also becomes the sacrifice on the mercy seat for us. Jesus is the full presence of God because it is in him that we get the full picture of God's holiness and his grace meeting on the cross. The only one who could on his own merit stand in his holy father's presence is the same one who becomes the sacrifice for us on the mercy seat. So that the gap between us and God that was once there because of his holiness and our sin is no more. It's no more because it's been bridged by the cross. Jesus endures, observes all the wrath of God that his holiness requires For our sin, so that we get the grace of God that Jesus' obedience secures for us as we're in his presence. You know what's interesting in the Gospel of John? When Mary goes to visit Jesus' tomb, at the tomb, when she looks in, she doesn't find him there, but she does see something. She sees something when she goes to the tomb and looks into the tomb. Do you remember what she sees? She sees two angels, two cherubim, one at the head and one at the foot, looking at each other, just like on the ark of the mercy seat. What John is telling us is that Mary is not looking at a tomb. She's looking at the final sacrifice on the mercy seat where the presence of God is found. 
And now that presence dwells in us through the Holy Spirit. We don't need to make a sacrifice every six steps, every week as we come to church, or every year as we celebrate Easter. There's no more sacrifice needed. He paid it all. He has given us full access into the presence of God. So now that there is no more ark, now that there is no more need to sacrifice, what is there left for us to do? Dance. Come on, Presbyterians. (laughs) Dance. That's what's left for us to do, is to dance. That is what we are to do in the presence of God. We are to worship him, to glory in him. What this means is that you will not only get his blessing for three months, but for all eternity. I'm going to end by tweaking the question that Hazel's teacher asked her in fifth grade. If you were given access into the presence of the ruler of the world, What's the first thing you're going to do? David shows us we're going to dance. We're going to dance. That's what we get to do before him. No more ark. No more sacrifice needed. Just dancing. Amen.